There is a voice inside every fallen and sinful heart that either whispers, says, or screams the same lie. People like us are better than people like them. People who look like us are better than people who look like them. People who have our political agenda are better than people with their political agenda. Even people who wear sweaters like this are better than people who wear sweaters like that. On and on it goes, and it's as old as sin itself. Here's how it looked in the first century. The Jewish people, so greatly blessed by God, knew how blessed they were, or at least something of it. And they had this misconception that said, well, if, if we've been given Abraham as a father, and we've been given the law, and we've been given the prophets, and we've been given so much other blessing, it must be that God has blessed us this much because we're better than those other nations. And God would destroy that misconception with these two verses that we're going to read. I pray that at the same time, he works against and even destroys similar prejudices that are in our own hearts. Let's look to the words of the Lord in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. Peter says, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The words of the Lord. Through these words, the Lord breaks down the prejudices that keep us from following him faithfully. Prejudices in hearts that can keep churches and countries from unity. And prejudices that can even keep some of us from receiving the good news of Jesus. But before we get to that point and that work that I pray the Lord does in us this morning, let's back up, look at the whole book of Acts, and let me just give you a few tips for reading the book of Acts. Now, the reason I'm doing this is that if you're reading along in our Bible reading plan, you would have read this passage this week, and you'll be reading the book of Acts till almost the end of this month of January. And you may not know this, but when July comes around, in mid-July, you'll start reading it again. You get Acts twice, actually the whole New Testament twice in this plan. And so it's fitting to give you a couple of tips on how to read and understand the whole thing. One of the biggest ones, I think, is that Acts 1.8 serves as a summary of the whole story of the book. Like one sentence, boom, story of the whole book. And so precise, it's even like a table of contents for the book. You look at the big picture there, and then when you're reading, you can figure out, okay, what part of the story am I in now? The book of Acts passes through really four phases. Jesus says in Acts 1.8, First, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. 
And that's the first thing that happens. Next chapter, the Spirit comes down, they get power, they begin to witness in Jerusalem. And then the next thing he says is, and Judea, that was the surrounding countryside. So the gospel will expand out to Judea. That's part two. Part three, phase three, and Samaria. So it expands out to Samaria. And for other reasons, they were kind of surprised that even the Samaritans get to receive the gospel. And then phase four, and even the ends of the earth. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to even the ends of the earth. And the book then catalogs the Spirit coming down and the message starting in Jerusalem, expanding to Judea, expanding to Samaria, and then out to the ends of the earth. So when you're reading in the book, one of the things you can keep in mind is, okay, where in that framework are we? Are we in phase two? In Judea? Are we in Samaria? Well, what's going on here? This story that we have today, chapter 10, marks the move from phase 3 into phase 4, from the gospel going to the Samaritans to now the gospel will extend even to someone who is completely outside of the nation of God. Not a Jew at all. And it is a big step in the story for the gospel to be carried to this Gentile man. The importance of this story is, on one hand, told just because of that. This is where we shift from phase three to phase four. The Gentiles get the gospel. Another way you can know that this story is important is that it's repeated three times. It's told here in chapter 10. Peter will tell the story again in chapter 11. And then in chapter 15, he will get up and tell the story again. Repetition is one of the ways you can know in the Bible that something is important. It's a tool that Bible writers used to tell the readers that something they were saying was important. So with those two tips, we look at this story. Here we are moving from phase three to phase four. The gospel has now gone to Samaria. And Saul has been converted. He's also called Paul. And it's been said that he will take the gospel to the Gentiles. So there's some expectation that, wait, are even those people going to get the gospel? Well, now we get the story where it goes to one. There's a righteous man named Cornelius. It's, he's described as a God-fearing man, someone who gave gifts and alms, someone who prayed very often. And he has a vision to send for Peter, the apostle Peter. Bring Peter in. Now, Cornelius is righteous. He's also a Roman centurion. He's an officer of over 100 people in the Roman army. So he is, by their definitions, one of the bad guys, one of those people that you don't expect the gospel to go to. But surprise, surprise, he's a God-fearing man. Well, meanwhile, while he gets this vision to summon Peter, Peter is having a vision of his own. He sees all sorts of food that the Jews considered unclean, but Jesus had made clean, and he's told to eat it. And he says, no, 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 I can't, I can't do this. I've never eaten anything unclean. And he gets the word from God in verse 15, do not call unclean what God has made clean. So the point there is that food God has made clean, don't call it unclean. But remember this, it's about food. The reason I want you to remember that is that it's not ultimately about food. Next, some people who work for Cornelius 
come and they meet Peter and they say, will you come to us? He says, I will. In fact, I had a strange vision. He goes and he meets Cornelius. Cornelius gives him his testimony. He tells him what's going on. And he says to them, hey, Jews like me are not supposed to meet with Gentiles like you. But in verse 25, he says something interesting. I'm sorry, it's not verse 25, it's verse 28. And it's in the second half of the verse. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, the vision said don't call food unclean, what God has called clean, right? But he knows the point of the vision. It's actually about people. Don't call people unclean if God has made them clean. So God is working on Peter's heart and his expectation that these Gentiles will not ever receive the gospel. That they're always going to be excluded from God's people. So then Cornelius gives his testimony and he says, here's what God said to me. He said that he was going to bring somebody like you here. So I sent for you and that you were going to give me a message and I needed to listen to it. And Peter realizes, oh, God is calling me to bring the gospel to this Roman military officer. Now it clicks for him. People of all nations can receive the gospel. This is why he says what he says in verses 34 and 35. Before we read that, another tip that something in the Bible is important is the way that a quote is framed. Normally, it's just, and so and so said. That's the norm. You look back at verse 30, and it says, and Cornelius said, right? That's what you expect. Sometimes they throw some extra words in there, and that's to tell you that this person's quote is really important, maybe even the point of the story. Indeed, it is the point of this story. So there's a little buildup in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, now you know it's a big deal, right? And then in Peter's words, there's also some buildup, right? Truly, now I understand that. So with all this buildup, you know that this point is really important to the story. Indeed, it is. What is it that's so important? Peter opened his mouth and he said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. That is our point today. God's character in his heart. Who is he? What is he like? He does not show partiality. That is part of what he is like. What is partiality? Well, this word used for partiality, it's really loaded with imagery. Literally, it means God does not lift up the face. He is not one who lifts up the face. You hear that and you're probably like, what does that mean? Uh, some older translations will say he is not a respecter of persons. And you may know what that means or you may not know what that means. Well, in the original, this idea of being a lifter of the face, it comes from greetings that noble people would give in that part of the world, especially further on the other side of the world, over in the oriental side of the world. You would greet a powerful, noble, royal person, anybody who had great power over you, by bowing before them. And if they wanted to honor you in front of everybody, they would take your face and they would lift it up to them. 
if you came from the right family, if you were part of the right house, if you looked enough like them, if you were part of the wealthy class and not part of the poor class, if you were part of the right group, the nobleman, the ruler, would lift your face and you would be honored before everyone. If you were not part of the right group, you stayed with your face down onto the ground in shame before all. Peter uses these words to say that God does not do that. God does not lift the face of those who are in the correct group and keep down the face of those who are in the wrong group. He is no respecter of persons. He does not show, as our translation says, partiality. Instead, how are we judged? Well, the next verse says, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So you got to do two things. If you want to be acceptable to God, you've got to fear him and you've got to do what is right. To fear him is to have a sense of how grand he is, just so much greater than you could ever think of being. To have that fresh in your heart and to tremble with joy before him, to say he is God, he is Lord, and there is none other. The same way that you might stand in awe before a mountain range or a rocket launch, your heart full of awe and reverence before God, and then to do what is right, which in some parts of the Bible are spoken as part of fearing him, and in other parts of the Bible spoken as a result of fearing him. Do what is right all the time. So this just means every moment, every day, your heart trembling with awe and reverence before God, giving him the due worship that he is worthy of. And with your lifestyle, with your hands, your feet, your tongue, walking in all of his ways. To fear him and walk in all of his ways. That is how he judges people. Do you fear him? Do you walk in all of his ways? And this aspect of his character, this is not something new. He has always been like this. In Genesis 4, Cain's worship is rejected by God. He's the first person we ever read about whose worship is rejected by God. And God says to him, if you do well, will you not be approved? Well, then centuries later, the sage in Ecclesiastes closes out his book with the main point. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. Same two things that are in here. Fear God and keep his commands. That is all God expects of us. Doesn't expect you to come from the right group. Doesn't care where you came from. Doesn't care what group you're part of. It cares what you do. Do you fear him? Do you walk in his ways? And it will be this way in the end. Revelation chapter 20 tells us of the last day when the dead rise and are judged before the great throne, there is a scroll on which everything we have ever done is written, the deeds we have done, written down, and we are judged by what is written on that scroll. We are judged by what we have done from the beginning. In the end, this is who God is. He does not show partiality. He judges each one 
according to what we have done. That's the main point of these words here. And that means several things for us. First, if we are judged by what we have done, the first question we got to ask is, have we done enough? How are we going to be judged? Is it enough? I ask you, I wonder if your conscience is already answering that question right now. If God's expectation of us, our whole duty is to always walk in the fear of him and always follow his ways, have you done that? Or is the Spirit of God working in your conscience right now to remind you that you have not lived all of your days in deep reverence for God Almighty? That you have not, with every step, walked in his ways? And if your conscience isn't already convicting you of that, perhaps Romans 2 and Romans 3 will. Let's turn over to Romans 2 and Romans 3. Today's point that God doesn't show partiality, but he renders to everyone according to what they've done, that's the foundation of Paul's argument in the book of Romans. You can see it said plainly in Romans 2, verse 6. I'll read it to you. It's just one short sentence. He will render to each one according to his works. So there's the foundation. He will render to each one according to his works. What is the judgment that he finds when he looks upon us? Well, for that, let's zoom ahead to chapter 3, verse 9, and the following verses. What then, he asks, are we Jews any better off? Because right, the Jews thought they were in a better place before God because of the blessings they have received. He says, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So no matter what group you're in, Jew or Gentile, non-Jew, we are under sin before God. How bad is it? How bad is God's judgment of us? That begins in verse 10, and it is rough. No one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. All the way of peace they have not known. And here's that familiar phrase again. There is no fear of God before their eyes. God's verdict for me, for you, for everyone. There is no fear of God before our eyes. Not one of us is righteous before him. Not one. So all of us will be judged without partiality for what we have done. And all of us will be found wanting before God. When you stand before him, the groups that you are part of, the fact that you probably feel like you're on the good side and those other people are on the bad side, that will mean nothing before God. And it will offer you no protection. You will be judged by what you have done, and you will be found wanting. So what do we do? 
Well, for that, we move a little more ahead, still in chapter 3, but over to verses 23, 24, and 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've already established that. And all are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you want to be found good before God, if you want God to look to you and say, I show my favor, I find this person worthy, you are welcome in my presence, you need redemption that is found in one man in Christ Jesus. How do you find that redemption? The next verse says, Who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That means that when Jesus died, he died as a sacrifice in the place of sinners. His blood, his death, is enough to pay for all the sins of sinners. To be received by faith, it says. So if you want Jesus' death, Jesus' blood to pay for all of your sins, how do you receive that? You receive it by trusting in him. You receive that by faith. This is the only way that you can be found worthy before God. No matter who you are, no matter what tribe, what tongue, what nation you are from, no matter what political party you are part of, no matter how you identify, no matter what boxes you check on all of those demographic forums when you take a survey or apply for a job, no matter what that profile is, you will be judged by what you do, you will be found wanting, and the only way you can be right before God is to trust Jesus for forgiveness. So that's what I call you to do right now. Whatever day or time you're watching this message, even if you must for a moment hit pause and just go before God, just ask Jesus to forgive you. Trust him and his work to be enough to forgive you for sins, and you will find yourself right before God when you are judged on the last day. This is the news we call the gospel. We proclaim it over and over again here, and it brings us joy every time that we do it. Notice that even for Cornelius, this is true. Back to the story in Acts. Cornelius is a God-fearing man, generally speaking. He gives prayers all the time. He gives alms all the time. And Peter next will communicate to him the gospel. He will say in chapter 10, verse 43, to him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So that's the message that Peter, what I just proclaimed to you, Peter proclaimed it to Cornelius that day. Cornelius had to turn from his sin, and he had to trust in Jesus to be saved. It's true of him, and it is true of you. Every person, no matter where you come from, no matter what group you're part of, you must turn to Jesus to be saved. That is what these words mean for every soul who has ever lived on earth. They mean something special, actually two special things, for Jesus' followers. If you have turned from sin, you follow Jesus, you are part of his church now, one of his people. I invite you to come be part of our church if you don't have a church nearby to be part of. And for the church, these words mean a few special things just for us. First, if we serve a God who is not partial, that means that we cannot be partial. If he does not show partiality, we must obey the commands in Scripture not to show partiality. 
This is really explicit in James chapter 2, the first couple of verses. About a year and a half ago, I preached right here a sermon on those words. You can find it in our podcast if you want. That one is about partiality shown toward the rich and against the poor, if you're particularly interested in that. But any form of partiality has no place in the Christian life. Over and over again, people are commanded. God's followers are commanded. The judges are commanded You shall not show partiality. You shall hear the small and the great alike. We are all commanded to walk justly before God, to show no partiality to anyone, to be no lifter of the face, to be no respecter of persons, because that is the sort of God that we serve. If we consider our ways, this can rebuke many of us, and it rebukes many in the larger church today who have bought into the lies of the spirit of the age. Church, there are too many Christians who are willing to insinuate that black people are criminals. This is wrong before an impartial God. And there are too many Christians who are willing to teach openly that to be white is to be racist. This is wrong before an impartial God. He shows no partiality. Neither will we show partiality. No, we will remember what each individual has done. It's one thing it means for us. It also means, though, along the same lines, that we cannot do church in a way that shows favor towards certain kinds of people and not other kinds of people. It's just natural when a group of people get together, you'll wind up, you know, because there's not an even number of certain types of people all over the world, you'll wind up a lot of times at a church with people that look a little bit like you, right? It's more of one type of person in a local church than of another kind of person. It happens that way. That puts on us a temptation to cater towards one or the other, to show favor toward one over the other. And the church cannot conduct itself in a way that shows partiality. We cannot do church together in a way that shows partiality toward one kind of person. That principle informs much of what we do as a church together. The second thing that these words mean for Christians, for the church, in order to really be understood, has to get back up to the larger story again. Remember, this is the part of the book of Acts where we move from phase three to phase four. The gospel has gone from from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria now to the Gentiles, to everyone in the world. That is God's heart. That is God's mission and plan to bring the gospel to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, make a people for himself of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And it takes some work in Peter's heart before he realizes his part in this mission. He did not expect that God was going to use him to bring the gospel to a Gentile, a Roman soldier, that day. And I wonder if he even thought that he was not the right person for the job. It's a little surprising that God would use Peter for this. Peter would even later slip back into this sin of partiality again and refuse to eat with Gentiles. He would be rebuked by the Apostle Paul for this. He had just learned that Paul was going to be bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. There is here an element of surprise that, yes, God is calling you to bring the gospel to that person that you didn't expect him to bring it to that day. 
And if we're going to do right before God, we've got to be ready for him to do the same thing to us. His mission, his desire, is to bring the gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation. And sometimes he surprises you by choosing you to do it in a day and time when you didn't think he was going to do so. That means that like Peter that day, you must be ready for whatever mission he calls you to. You may be 25 right now and preparing for a career that you have been preparing for for a long time only to find the call of God taking you to the other side of the world to bring the gospel to a people you've never heard of, to a language you can't yet speak, in a manner that you find yourself to be totally unqualified for. You may be 85 hearing these words, thinking that most of your service to the Lord has already happened, that there's little left, if any. And God may call you in this hour and in this time to bring the gospel to a people on the other side of the world at your age, a people that you've never heard of, to a language that you cannot yet speak. Why would he do that? Well, because that is his heart for the nations, for us to bring the gospel to people who are nothing like us in terms of demographics and appearance. This might even mean that the Lord will call your children or your grandchildren to a mission that you aren't quite ready for him yet to call them to. My question is, are you ready for that? Are you ready for him to surprise you with a calling just so different than you expected? Are you ready for him to surprise you with calling your children or your grandchildren to a different part of the world when it sure seems to you like they're qualified for this one thing? Are we ready for what God may choose to do next? We must always be, church. Sadly, for as long as we are sinners, that voice is going to remain in our hearts. That voice that lies and says, we're better than people who aren't like us. People like us are better than people like them. That voice will be there every day. And church, as Christians, we must every day get up, take up our cross, die to ourselves. And following Jesus, we must say to that lying voice, be gone, Satan, for I serve a God who shows no partiality.